Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly. I'm Sean Donnan, the FT's World News Editor, standing in for Gideon Ruckman, who's away on assignment. This week, we look at the tale of two anniversaries. March 15th marks the second anniversary of the uprising against the Assad regime in Syria. And in the early hours of March 20th, we will be marking the 10th anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War, a conflict that still reverberates around the world today. Joining me on the line from Damascus is Abigail Fielding-Smith. Also on the line from Istanbul today is David Gardner, one of the FT's senior commentators on international affairs. And here in the studio is Halaf, our Middle East editor. Abby, let's start with you. What does Damascus look like two years into this conflict? Well, one of the main differences is that there's just really intense presence of checkpoints, particularly in the center of the city and the old city. It now takes much longer to get places and you're stuck in the sort of checkpoint queue for sometimes more than an hour just to go sort of simple, quite short distances. One of the other things that I noticed, which I didn't really notice until I went up north to Tartus, where uh, it's kind of much calmer and, and more of a kind of stronghold of regime support, is that there are fewer pictures of Bashar al-Assad up everywhere than there used to be. It used to be pretty much every corner shop had at least five or six. And it seems to me that there are fewer, which I guess reflects the fact that nowadays, with the rebels coming closer and closer to the centre, no one wants to be too publicly identified with either side. Do you get a real sense that day-to-day life is still going on for most Damascenes? I mean, certainly in the, those that live in Damascus proper, I think other than the massive inconvenience of checkpoints and, of course, the kind of reasonably frequent car bombs, day-to-day life goes on as normal. Prices are higher. It's harder to get things. There's often sort of shortages of gas. There's power cuts. But generally speaking, life goes on as normal. You know, there's restaurants people sitting around in cafes and bars. One big difference, actually, is that people tend to get off the streets by about 6 or 7 o'clock. This always used to be a city which people were hustling about up until 2 or 3 a.m. Now it's pretty much dead after about 6 or 7 o'clock in most places because the perceived risk of kidnapping, I think, is just making people very reluctant to go out after dark. There are regular and thunder-like booms, um, which I think is the artillery hitting the suburbs which you can hear all over the city and sometimes makes the windows rattle. And I mean, when I first got here, I was jumping at every single one because they're so loud and the Damascenes were laughing at me. And now after about four or five days, I've gotten the same state that they're all in where it sort of becomes background noise. So that's another very obvious uh, reminder of the civil war, which is engulfing much of the rest of the country. Now, you mentioned these checkpoints that have sprung up all, all over town. Who are, who are we seeing manning these checkpoints? Is this the, the military? Are these the, the, the shabiha, the militias? Well, this is one of the things that's all become rather murky. You often just get armed people in fatigue, sometimes not in fatigue, and it's not entirely clear who they all are. I think it's mainly intelligence in the central parts of the city. In some of the areas where there's, particularly on the fringes of the city or in the suburbs where there's a strong Christian or Alawite minority, there are these civilian popular committees which have sprung up. 
which now run checkpoints which look very like official state army checkpoints. And some of them are army as well, but I haven't quite got the knack. I don't know if Damascenes have got it of learning to tell the difference between all the different types of armed actors that could be there at a checkpoint. From from what you describe, I mean, is that largely Damascus remains a, a city that functions with some obvious caveats uh, two years into this insurgency. And I think that raises the question of where we go from now, where we go over the next year or, or two. What's your sense from having been there on the ground, Abby? Well, when I've been asking people this, they tend to say they don't know, but nothing good. I mean, some regime supporters will give you a very loyal narrative that bit by bit the government is prevailing and that they won't be able to overrun Damascus. Actually, for all the kind of drama of the booming artillery and occasional rebel push into the city, oh, there was a boom, I don't know if you heard it. What you have is in some ways quite a stalemated situation whereby the rebels are operating in the suburbs, making the odd daring strike or push into the city centre itself, but not really kind of establishing a real presence there, whilst the regime is keeping them very successfully at bay. But at the same time, in spite of all the military resources they've spent, you know, trying to pummel them into submission, unable to actually get rid of them in the suburbs. So in terms of the overview for Syria in the next year, I think more of this kind of attrition is, is very likely in which the situation kind of becomes gradually more chaotic, but not necessarily a kind of rebel overrunning of Damascus anytime soon. Now, Rula, you've been watching Syria for a long time. I mean, this, this sort of war of attrition, this, this, this sort of gradual insurgency that just creeps on and gets uglier and uglier. Is that how you see things developing? Or are we going to see some great change in this conflict in the years to come? or in the year to come? I think that in the short term and in the long term, obviously the, the regime is not going to prevail. The rebels as well don't have sufficient weapons and are, they're not even sufficiently united in order to be able to win militarily. On the other side, the diplomatic solution also doesn't seem to be going anywhere. There have been proposals recently that have been put to Bashar al-Assad so that he would leave during a transition rather than at the end of a transition. And even some of his supporters, the Iranians and the Russians, seem to be in agreement that he'd have to go during a transition, and he just flatly said no. So you have here a regime that can't win, but is not willing to go. And on the rebel side, they're not being supported enough so that they can prevail militarily. And on the ground, they are fragmenting more and more. There are now even people who are helping them, even you know Western governments that want to help them and might even step up uh, non-lethal and possibly even lethal aid. They're also pitting them against the jihadis. And my concern is that you're going to have increasingly a clash between different elements of the insurgency. Now, David, we, we've had this week David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, raise the possibility of arming the uh, the rebels directly, even if a, a broader EU coalition or a broader Western coalition didn't. We've heard things like this in, in dribs and drabs before. Is your sense that the debate over Western intervention is changing at all? I think it may be, yes. It is, as Rula and Abby describe, it's this sort of dynamic stalemate. You have very broadly and oversimplifying three camps. You have the regime, you have the mainstream rebels, and you have the jihadis. Obviously, it's much more fragmented than that on the ground, but just for the purposes of simplification. The regime never runs out of ammunition. 
The jihadis never run out of ammunition. The people that constantly run out of ammunition are the people that the West would like eventually to prevail and to inherit and govern a united Syria. Now, clearly, this policy isn't working, is it? I mean, if the purpose of standing back was to prevent weapons and munitions falling into the wrong hands, well, that is exactly what is happening. The weapons for the most part, are in the hands of the regime and the jihadis. This is a policy that is clearly not working. It is out of date. To cling to the idea that somehow some sort of dialogue, negotiation, and so on, always infinitely the preferable option, is going to change the dynamics of this is delusional. With all due respect to Lakda Brahimi and indeed Kofi Annan before him, the only purpose of that negotiating role at the moment is to provide a fig leaf for the Russians. So, you know, there may be something changing. I think the French who had backed the British on this in the autumn and then stood back a bit after they went into Mali and found that some of the weapons supplied in the Libyan context had indeed ended up in the wrong hands, as it were, are having second thoughts, possibly on the merits of the Syrian case, possibly having seen that Francois Hollande has got a, a little bounce out of Mali in the polls. Now, this entire debate and the second anniversary of the uh, uprising in Syria is happening in the shadow of another uh, intervention uh, that we are uh, marking the anniversary of uh, next week, and that is, of course, the Iraq War. It is now 10 years since the U.S.-led coalition moved into Iraq and overthrew the regime of Saddam Hussein. And that clearly casts a shadow on the debate uh, that we're having today over Syria. Ruler, what's your sense as to how the debate in Syria is being shaped by the debate we didn't have to a certain extent 10 years ago? I think particularly in the U.S., there's definitely the shadow of Iraq. And I think the Obama administration in particular is haunted by, by what happened in Iraq. But to me, and I've thought this for a long time, I compare Syria to Iraq in 1991 when people were encouraged to rise against Saddam and then left to fend for themselves. I think it's important to recognize the mistake of the Iraq war, but it's important not to let also the mistake of the Iraq war color and shape and determine how the U.S. conducts foreign policy in the future. Syria is a different case, and Syria's social makeup might be similar to Iraq's social makeup, but we're not even talking in this case about the same types of intervention. Mm. You know, nobody's talking about boots on the ground. Nobody's ever talked about right. uh, an invasion. So I think, sadly, there's been this, this comparison between the two. David? Yeah, no, I entirely agree with the comparison with 1991, where, you know, you incite people to rise up against a regime and then, you know, stand back and watch them being drowned in blood. It does look a bit like that, frankly, but there is something that can be done about this. It's very important not to be held hostage to Iraq, which was the most grotesque, blundering, misbegotten intervention, which did enormous damage, part of which is very much with us and overshadows almost everything in the region, which is the Sunni-Shia fight, of which, you know, Syria and possibly Lebanon are the current front lines. 
I don't think you can be caught like a rabbit in headlights because of this, assuming you want to have a foreign policy which aims at some sort of stability in the region, not to mention justice. It is very important not to mix the two things up. The shadow of Iraq, and then there's the whole endlessly reiterated Syria is not Libya argument. But as Rula said, I mean, we're not talking about the same kind of intervention in the first place. And nor do I think either side can prevail in Syria. Clearly, the regime cannot regain control of the country. At present, the rebels cannot dislodge the regime. But were they able to put up a much more equal fight and to consolidate areas of control in the north and east of the country and so on, what they could then do is accelerate the implosion of the regime to reduce it to its inner core. And then you might be looking at the possibility of some sort of negotiation with those, that obviously doesn't include the Assad clan, who wish to preserve something of, of what came before. Abby, let's go back to you. I mean, the, the, we, we are talking uh, about uh, the idea of, of, of Western intervention and what form that might take from afar. It's important to stress here that you are in Damascus on an official visa, that you have been accompanied throughout your trip by an official fixer, if I'm right, and that you haven't necessarily been in a place where everyone can speak freely. But do you get a sense from Damascenes or from others there in Syria that uh, they are looking for help from outside? Well, there's two things, really. I think of the three categories that David mentioned, there's actually a fourth category, which is not very influential on events at the moment which is people who are getting fed up with both sides. And that's the fastest growing category in Syria at the moment, I would say. The rebels have really alienated people with Islamic extremism and just kind of behaving in a kind of arbitrary and thug-like way in various places. And the whole reason that the rebels were able to operate so successfully and move so kind of fluidly was that they had the support of communities. I have the sense that, obviously, as you say, I'm in Damascus on an official visa, and I'm sure things look very different, say, in Idlib, which has been on the receiving end of government airstrikes. But I do have the sense that people are just tired on both sides and just really want this to end. I've heard a lot of supportive talk for the idea of peace and dialogue, not necessarily just from sort of regime stooge-type people that you would expect, but um, I think that reflects a real fatigue on the ground. The other thing is, there haven't been that many journalists coming in lately on official visas, and um, most of the diplomatic presence is now withdrawn. So a lot of the people that I've been seeing, it's the first time they've actually encountered a, a representative of the West for some time. Uh, and as such, I've been to the receiving end of quite a lot of <laughs> lectures. But also, you know, genuine questions like what they say they can't understand is why we're supporting al-Qaeda uh, in Syria when we're supposedly... Um, secular and support Western values. And, and this is because um, the regime has, has accused the, the, the opposition of, of, of being linked to al-Qaeda, of course. We should make that point. That is true. But, um, and obviously the role of groups like Jabhat Nusra are very much sort of played up in the state media and there's been a lot of propaganda about it. But nonetheless, they are real and they do exist on the ground, which kind of gives the propaganda all the more impact. I mean, I, I spend most of my time here having to explain to people that the West is not currently intervening or not certainly to anything like the extent that they think they are. And that actually, you know, having to explain to people that a lot of people are angry with the West for not, for not intervening because the perception amongst a lot of the people I speak to 
on that side here is that the rest is deeply, deeply into this already. The ordinary people I've managed to speak to, certainly there's just a sense of total disillusionment and a feeling that really it's not worth it. On that note, Abigail Fielding-Smith in Damascus, thank you very much. Here in the studio, Rula Halaf, thank you very much. And down the line from Istanbul today, David Gardner, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week. The producer today was Martin Stabe. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.